Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Institute of World Politics. My name is Dr. Amanda Wan, and I'm the director of the China Asia program here at IWP. For those who are new to IWP, we are a graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs, and we have seven master's programs, including two online, and we have a doctor of statecraft and national security program, and 80 certificates of graduate study program, as well as a continuing education program. So if you are interested in learning more about any one of our programs, please feel free to come speak to me um, at the conclusion of the event, and I'll be more than happy to help you get connected with one of our recruiters. So today's event is part of the China Lecture Series, and we have Mr. Brad Schaffer, who will be presenting a lecture on No Limits Partnership to China-Russia Information Nexus. Mr. Brett Schaffer is a senior fellow and head of the Alliance for Securing Democracy's Information Manipulation Team. He's the creator and manager of Hamilton 2.0, an online open source dashboard tracking the outputs of Russian, Chinese, Iranian, state media outlets, diplomats, and government officials. As an expert in computational propaganda, state-backed um, information operations and tech regulation. He has spoken at conferences around the globe and advised numerous governments and international organizations. His research has appeared in the New York Times, USA Today, in the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. And he has been interviewed on NPR, MSNBC, CNN, Al Jazeera, and the BBC. Prior to joining GMF, he spent uh, more than 10 years in the television and film industry including stints at Cartoon Network and as a freelance writer for Warner Brothers. He uh, also worked in Budapest as a radio host and in Berlin as a semi-professional baseball player in Germany's Bundesliga. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> well, thank you so much, uh, Mr. Schaffer, for having us today, and we look forward to your presentation. Thank you. Um, just press it for three seconds. and. Thank you very much for that introduction, and thank you for coming today and for IWP for having me. I had a chance encounter with Ambassador Voss maybe two or three months ago where we were seated next to each other at dinner, and that led to me being here today. So it's nice that we can finally make this happen. So the, the topic of today's talk is the Russia-China partnership in the information space. This has obviously received pretty intense scrutiny since Russia's invasion of Ukraine where China's rhetorical support for Russia has been sort of impossible to ignore. But it's honestly something that we've started tracking going back to 2019, when China pivoted to becoming far more confrontational on Western social media platforms. So while the focus today, when we look at the sort of narrative overlap will be on the last year, a lot of what we're gonna cover is more of the tactics and techniques that we've seen China uh, in many cases adopt from Russia, but in some cases it's just learning from each other, it's sort of best practices or worst practices as the case may be. So to give a little bit of a lay of the land when we're talking about the Chinese and Russia propaganda ecosystem, the categories of manipulation actors that we're able to look at, what we study uh, at ASD are these sort of overt propaganda actors, what's called white propaganda. This may be well known to some in the audience, but this goes back to generations looking at Russian and Soviet propaganda. So overt white propaganda are the things that are clearly attributable to a state. So we break them down into two buckets, one of them being diplomats, government officials. Uh, these includes things like embassies, ministries of foreign affairs, government officials, 
and then, of course, state-backed media outlets. In both cases, China and Russia have advantages that many of our other adversaries around the world do not. I mean, they have vast resources. They have global information channels. They have ways to communicate to the West that Venezuela and North Korea simply do not. So just to, I'm sure this is very hard to see in the back of the room, maybe even the front of the room, honestly. But just to look at the sort of scale and reach of Russian and Chinese state media outlets on Western information platforms. These are charts showing the number of total followers of Russian state media and Chinese state media on Facebook. I took these this morning, so they should be really up to date. Russia currently, this is across all of their pages on Facebook, their state media pages. They have about 88 million followers around the world. China has over a billion, billion with a B. Now, that number is probably artificially inflated. We know China runs fake accounts, fake pages, but even if you half that number, it is a significant presence. And of course, most of that presence is not coming from Chinese citizens who are banned from accessing Facebook. So they have a footprint around the world, particularly in the global south, that in many ways significantly outperforms what the United States has, what other Western allies have, in terms of the reach, the influence that we have through state media accounts and outlets. So in particular, as I mentioned, both Russia and China do very, very well in the global south. There are some obvious reasons for this. There is sort of inherent anti-American sentiment that is there. There's sort of been generations of connections, particularly when we're talking about uh, Russian, uh, the Russians in Latin America, but also the Chinese in Africa. So this again, this is a chart taken from our Facebook data, looking at where RT and Espanol, so RT's Spanish language outlet, uh, sits vis-a-vis -vis other, uh, other international broadcasters in the Spanish language. So this is from last year because some of the restrictions Facebook has put in place post the invasion have actually degraded some of the support for Russian state media on Facebook, and we've seen that on Twitter and YouTube as well. But last year, as of April, RT and Espanol ranked as the number four most interacted with Facebook page in Spanish language among major international media outlets. So slightly behind uh, Univision, sort of comparable to Deutsche Welle and Espanol, and it had about eight or ten times the number of interactions of, excuse me, Voz de, Voz de America, which is, of course, VOA's uh, Spanish language outlet. In terms of total followers, they had over 18 million, which is, <coughs> excuse me, I'll get my voice back in a second. <laughs> uh, over 18 million followers, which is number one. So significantly more followers than any other Spanish language Facebook page. <clears throat> we also saw this though in Germany. So prior to the German federal elections in 2021, we did a similar study where we found that RT Deutsch, so this is again RT's German language outlet, had more interactions than any other German media outlet on Facebook. This is Bild, Der Spiegel, Der uh, Welt. This is sort of shocking. So you have a Russian state-funded broadcaster we found a larger audience in Germany than major domestic media outlets. Again, this is no longer the case because of EU restrictions, but this shows the kind of influence and reach that they had at least at one point. 
Then, of course, the other side of this is the diplomatic trolling that Russia was so good at, and were really sort of first movers in this space, particularly on Twitter. So Russia, this is going back to 2016, 2014 even, through official embassy accounts, started engaging in sort of active trolling behavior. So they were, for lack of a better term, very undiplomatic in the way that they used their information channels. So you see a couple of examples here of tweets that received high engagement. The one on the left had over 17,000 likes. This is a shocking number for a embassy account. Usually we see retweets and likes in the single or double digits. China saw the success and slowly started adopting uh, this pattern of using their embassy accounts, or at least even creating embassy accounts on Twitter. So this shows the accounts that we're currently tracking. These are Russian and Chinese diplomatic accounts and when they were created on Twitter. So Russia starting in 2010, slowly started getting their diplomatic accounts, their ambassadors onto Twitter. And again, these accounts became very significant in pushing sort of Russia's messaging uh, across the globe, but particularly into the West. China was late in terms of adopting it. They had a few notable figures on social media in the early 2010s, but really China did not start getting their diplomats on Twitter in mass until around 2019. Of course, 2019, Hong Kong protests. This is when we saw China really pivot in the information space to become more confrontational. As soon as Hong Kong started kicking off, Chinese diplomats globally logged onto Twitter. This accelerated towards the end of 2019, 2020, with of course COVID. So there was a real need for Chinese diplomats to start pushing back, to become more aggressive, and they started doing this through Twitter. Initially, there were some missteps. So on the right is a tweet from the Chinese embassy in Ireland. If you can tell me what this is supposed to mean, uh, I would be grateful. This, of course, was sort of lost in the information space. They didn't really get the nuances of how to use Western information platforms. There was very clunky attempts to try to troll Western uh, diplomats, Western state media, didn't land particularly well. They've slowly learned and gotten better. One of their more engaged with tweets, this is from Hua Chunying, who's the Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokesperson, who in response to a State Department spokesperson's tweet about abuses against Hong Kong protesters, just responded with, I can't breathe. This is, of course, right after the George Floyd protests. So China adopted sort of Russia's tactic of being more aggressive, directly trolling Western officials, and they started gaining an audience. So currently, when we look across the entire landscape of Chinese officials and state media accounts on Twitter, their most influential voices are actually their diplomats. This is different from Russia. Russia, and I would guess probably most other countries, their state media accounts get far more engagement than their diplomats. But China's diplomats are really forward leaning. So the number one most retweeted, this is from 2022, account in the Chinese ecosystem, this is a consul general in Belfast, a pretty insignificant person in the grand scheme of the Chinese MFA, but she has become what's called a wolf warrior. Very aggressive, very confrontational, uses memes, uses the language of the platform uh, to really push an aggressive sort of anti-Western message. So then from the overt, we move to the gray area of propaganda. This is slightly harder to track, uh, at least in real time, because the connections back to the government are not always particularly clear. In some cases are intentionally obfuscated to a degree. 
This is Russia's propaganda ecosystem. So these are all of the outlets that have been at one point or another attributed to either Russian intelligence, Russian state media, pro-Kremlin oligarchs, or just other sort of pro-Kremlin figures and amplifiers around the digital ecosystem. China has not done quite as well in this space yet. They just don't have the sort of natural tentacles into sort of Western, Western voices that would mirror sort of a pro-Beijing take on uh, uh, international affairs, although they're getting a little better. They have a significant presence now with sort of pro-Beijing YouTubers, for example, who post videos of travel vlogs going to Xinjiang, saying nothing's happening here, here's my wonderful trip, you can see the minders behind them half the time, but they haven't quite built out the presence that Russia has. So in the case of the war, these have become particularly influential because, of course, again, Russian state media, Russian diplomats have been restricted or banned on many Western social media platforms. But these guys aren't. So these are just sort of pro-Kremlin war bloggers on Telegram who have significant followings. Again, their, their message is, is clearly aligned with the Kremlin for the most part. What we've also seen them do is essentially try to use Western counter-messaging, sort of counter-disinformation techniques, uh, I guess, flip it on its head. So we've seen them create these sort of fake OSINT, so OSINT, open source intelligence sites that presumably are set up to back up Russia's point of view or Russian claims about war crimes. The most influential one is called War on Fakes. War on Fakes was created three days after the invasion and almost immediately started being picked up, retweeted by diplomats, state media accounts. So you see them sort of outsource this bogus uh, sort of investigative techniques saying that no, Bucha was staged, here's the evidence, getting very sort of complicated in the, the, the terms they use, the techniques that they use with Russian diplomats and media amplifying that. What we have also seen, and this is sort of a tough one to characterize uh, because there's not a clear connection back to any state actor actually running these pages or accounts, but we often see Russian state media or Chinese state media appear in what are essentially fake local news outlets. So this is Albuquerque Express. It's part of what's called the Big News Network. There's 600 plus of these sort of faux local news sites that are just aggregators of content from across the digital ecosystem, sometimes with some local content. For the most part, they're just pulling in content from wherever they can find it. So this is an article, again, appearing like it's just a normal sort of foreign affairs article in Albuquerque Express. But if you can read there, it does actually even say that the byline is Xinhua. So you're getting Chinese content laundered into these full American, not necessarily American, but this one obviously is, local news outlets so that the connection back to the government is not clear or the government's position. And then finally, we have the sort of black covert accounts. This most famously is exemplified by the Russian Internet Research Agency's uh, attempts around 2016 to create 3,000 plus fake American accounts influence at some level conversations in the US, generally around domestic issues, so not Russian foreign policy issues. This is Louisa Haynes. Louisa Haynes does not exist. This is a Russian troll. But by the time this account was caught and shut down by Twitter, it had roughly 35,000 followers. It had been cited by, I think, Time, 
Newsweek, at least 12 major media outlets as a source of authentic opinion around issues related to Black Lives Matter, NFL protests, all of it being run out of St. Petersburg. So it's a way of burrowing into authentic American or other Western conversations and kind of manipulating from within. Very easy to do in a digital environment, of course. But we also see through their black covert channels, this is where they will run efforts uh, that are malicious enough or manipulative enough that they don't want their fingerprints directly on them. So often we'll see hack and leaks or forgeries first appear through black or covert channels. So on the left there, this is a forged uh, letter, presumably from uh, Marco Rubio, saying that there's a payment being made to this German researcher who's done a lot of work exposing abuses in Xinjiang. This was forged clearly, and then it ran in this thing called the Swiss Zeitung, which was found to be just a Chinese cutout. It's not a real outlet. So you have the forgery, it appears on Twitter. I'm not sure if that's an authentic account or not. That may be a covert account, but then appears on an outlet that is just a carve out. And then on the right, this is actually one of the better examples, I think, of the US pushing back and debunking some of the propaganda that appeared in the sort of covert ways. This was a letter um, that, <laughs> that presumably was sent by the Department of State about a LGBT activist in Russia. This again was a forgery. It appeared in Russian state media. The US Embassy very creatively went through like a grammar professor and just marked up all of the mistakes throughout it. This was effective, it got picked up globally. So this I think is an example of where, when we're talking about countering disinformation, they did excellent work here. But again, all exists in this sort of covert space where there's a degree of separation between the activity and the threat actor. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the sort of more of the behavioral side of information manipulation before we get to the narratives. So the A, B, C, D, and E's of information manipulation. This was a sort of taxonomy created by um, the Carnegie Endowment, a researcher named James Pamet. So what A means in this A, B, C, D, E is the actor. So here, of course, we're talking about governments. In many cases at this point, you don't need to be a government with unlimited resources to run an effective manipulation campaign. You can be a politically motivated person. You can be a, uh, a political party. Uh, you can be an individual influencer with just a little bit of money to throw around. But everything we'll be talking about here today will be about governments and then how governments, particularly Russia, China, have start, started to outsource some of their manipulation efforts to other actors. Some of those are what we call the rent seekers. So these are people just doing it for money. So oftentimes we'll see Russian Chinese propaganda appearing in these outlets or on social media where the motive is clear that the person running it just wants to make money through clicks, but it is beneficial for China and Russia, obviously, because they're just getting more amplification of their content. So one of the case studies that we ran, this is last month, is we looked at an RT article so this is around the classified documents that were find, found in Biden's residence. So Snowden identifies real scandal regarding Biden docs. This is a actual RT article. And then we ran a Bing search for this to see where else this article was getting picked up. And you see the top three results we get there are not from RT because Bing has taken efforts to downrank RT. They're from the aforementioned big news network. 
And then a third one, if you could read, is from a thing called Little Rock AR News. Again, appears to be a local media outlet. And when you go to Little Rock AR News, they've got an author bio there, basically the same article, but this author doesn't exist. This is not a real person. The image is not even real. It's a GAN-generated image, meaning wow. this person does not exist. So if you try to reverse engineer that picture, find who it is, you're gonna come up empty. This has been a progression in the manipulation techniques we've seen from Russia and China, because this is how we used to catch them running fake accounts. You could reverse image search, say, this is clearly a person who lives in Brazil, has nothing to do with it. Now you can't, because that it's entirely sort of computer generated. Judy also, if you go through this site, had published about 250 articles that day, which is prolific. <laughs> and what we found actually is what they were using to avoid plagiarism detection on Google, Bing, is they were changing specific words throughout the article, sometimes in ways that were very, very clunky. So classified materials was changed to delicate supplies. That doesn't really work, but sometimes it does. You know, earlier would, become, would then be before then. And again, this was ways of basically tricking search engines to say this is a unique, authentic article, not an RT Russia propaganda article, but it makes its way into the American ecosystem in ways that clearly scrubs any connection back to RT. Then the other actors we have looked at, so their PR reputational management firms, both Russia and China, have outsourced some of their manipulation campaigns, reputation cleansing campaigns, to Western PR firms. So we saw Russia do this, I think it was in France, where they enlisted a PR agency to attack the Pfizer vaccine. We've seen China do that here. China paid $300,000 to an American company to get influencers on social media to promote pro-PRC takes on the Beijing Olympics. The real challenge here is that company has to register with FARA, but the individual influencers don't. So when Americans come in contact with an influencer, a real housewife, for example, and I think that's actually a real case, who's promoting a positive take on the Olympics, they're not seeing any warning label there. That person isn't registering with FARA. So it's, again, laundering Chinese propaganda through authentic American voices. And then there's these manipulation for profit firms or for hire firms. If you wanna know how to manipulate Google, you just have to Google it and you'll get 50 companies who will do it for you. They'll give you fake followers, fake clicks, fake likes. Uh, it's all relatively easy and relatively cheap. Now to the B side of the ABCDE. This is the behavior. So what we see with the behavior is the use often of fake accounts. We've already kind of talked about that. These are what call, are called sock puppet accounts. Again, this person doesn't exist. It was a Russian troll. So they just create fake accounts to pretend to be an American, a German, whatever uh, audience they're trying to infiltrate. Then we've seen fake groups and pages. Russia has done this more than China to date, uh, but this is essentially setting up communities online that can be manipulated. Most famously, there was an example through this stop Islamization of Texas where they set up a protest and a counter protest in Houston, Texas at the exact same time. So you had two groups brought to the same street, both by Russian trolls in St. Petersburg without un any understanding of who was sort of pulling the strings there. 
Then you have stolen and hijacked accounts. This is one of my favorite examples from China. This is Fort Lauderdale Eats, which used to give you tips on happy hours in Fort Lauderdale, and at some point just flipped over to pushing out PRC propaganda. So it's what happens when people just lose interest in their accounts. Somebody hacks it, steals it, uses it for propaganda purposes. It's very easy if you go to the actual account to realize this isn't authentic. But again, it's about volume and pushing more content out. And this person presumably had a lot of followers. So the followers who, again, went to understand what the sort of tips were to get a good deal at TGI Fridays are now coming in contact with Chinese propaganda. And then just bots and spamming. This is just sort of very low effort techniques to try to, again, amplify their voice. No real effort put into these accounts. The same picture was used across 100 accounts. Uh, so it's probably not confusing anyone who actually saw that account directly, but it confuses the uh, algorithm. So the search engines prioritize what's popular. You get 100 accounts retweeting one Chinese official that will start to get things to trend. That's the whole purpose. And then copy and paste sites. So again, Facebook will restrict a Russian intelligence site. They'll set up 50 other mirror sites running the same content, but it's a way of circumventing bans. And then cyber-enabled disinformation. Russia, China, Iran, they're all quite good at this. These, again, would be hack and leaks. So they're using information along with hacked or compromised material. So okay, the C part of it, what most people focus on is the content, of course. Text-based content is easy for us to analyze, to collect that data. Um, it is increasingly becoming sort of old-fashioned in propaganda, so it is less and less used, which is, makes it more difficult for us on the side of trying to expose these efforts to systematically track it. What we also see in terms of content is the use of manipulated images. This is former Ambassador John Teft, who, when I was a grad student in the embassy in Moscow, uh, was my ambassador then. This was a, an image that a Russian media outlet ran, uh, purporting to show him at an opposition rally, but was really just him photoshopped from an earlier uh, event when he was at uh, Boris Nemtsov's uh, memorial. Um, weeks or months prior. Similarly, we see a lot of out-of-context images used. So this is a real protest in Romania, but the tweet tells you it's about COVID restrictions. Actually, it was an anti-government protest years prior. This is all pretty easy to do. Um, tough for the platforms to detect. And then you have manipulated audio and video. So I worked in entertainment. Some of these techniques are not entirely different from what we did in reality television. So it's taking things out of context, using them in isolation, omissions, splicing things together in ways that are a little bit manipulative. And then on the truly malicious side, it would be doctoring or fabrication. So this would be AI-generated images, audio. This has always been looked at as sort of the, the next generation of threat that we're not particularly well prepared for. And then finally, the D, de degree. So degree is what, are the, what is the scale of the case? This is more of how we look at it in terms of our response and our pushback. What's the audience on how many platforms? Did it go viral? What's the scale and what's the adoption? So when we're assessing a specific campaign 
and whether or not we should respond and call attention to it. These are some of the check marks we use to make sure it's actually worth our attention, A, and B, that we're not breathing oxygen into something that might die on its own. And then, of course, is the, the effect. So how much of a threat does a case pose? This is the most important thing. Is it damaging to an individual's reputation? Does it cause polarization? Is it a public health threat, public safety, or a national security, or a threat to democracy? So those, again, are some of the checklists we use to try to create some sort of some sort of threshold for when we need to flag something publicly, whether it is to friendly governments or media or just do something on our own in terms of a report. So then I did want to talk briefly because this is an area, again, where China and Russia have significant advantages over almost everyone else from a government perspective in terms of running info ops campaigns, is the ability to manipulate search engines and search queries. So when we're looking at the effect of propaganda, obviously there needs to be somebody who comes in contact with it for it to be effective. They're looking for an audience, they're looking for eyeballs. In some cases they can achieve that on social media again by creating accounts with a lot of followers. But often, and I find one of the more successful ways of getting propaganda in front of audiences is when it can surface naturally through a generic search query. And why I find this to be particularly problematic is most people come to a search engine thinking that they are going to get, at least at some level, credible, authoritative results. So that if they run a generic term for what's happening in Ukraine, there's an expectation that they're going to get pretty good content. If China or Russia can manipulate those search algorithms to get their content to surface higher, they have effectively won the information war, frankly, because people are too lazy to go to page two of search results. Mm -hmm. And we know that. Only 9% of Google searchers ever make it to even the bottom of the first page, let alone the second page. So if you can drown that out, you've won, just because you're in front of people. It's pretty basic. And what we saw, again, this is prior to the invasion of Ukraine, when search engines really did start cracking down but I ran this search term actually when I was in London, so this shouldn't have been any sort of data deficit is what it's called, any lack of content around the poisoning of Sergei Skripal. This was relatively shortly after the poisoning. On YouTube, I ran this search, and if you can see, two of the top three results came from RT, and I think eight of the top 10. So if you are an average British citizen wanting to know what's happening with the investigation, you're not particularly well uh, versed in Russian state media outlets. You're just going with what YouTube is giving you. Eight of the top 10 perspectives are from Russia. Nord Stream 2, this is run through Google. Again, this is a few years old at this point, but two of the top three of the top news stories came from Russian state media outlets about Nord Stream. China has also become very effective at this. So this was again, I think, a YouTube search for Fort Detrick, which Fort Detrick, of course, is sort of central to China's conspiracy theories about the origins of COVID, saying it was actually a lab leak at Fort Detrick in the US, not potentially a lab leak in Wuhan or any other way that COVID sort of entered the world. If you ran Fort Detrick as a generic search, uh, three of your top four results there are from Chinese state media. And then Xinjiang, so I ran 
query for Xinjiang debunked or Xinjiang lies. And again, three of the top five come from Chinese state media. So one of the ways this works too is there's a priming effect. So Chinese diplomats, state media on social media will use very specific terms to talk about a topic, hoping that users will go back and Google those terms. And it's actually often, this is something we see people try to lead audiences to a well of information that they have created. It's the sort of do your own research idea. Don't trust me, go Google Xinjiang lies. But when you Google it, when you Google that term, you're led right back to Chinese state media because Chinese state media is the only one using the term Xinjiang lies. We see this across many, many different sort of information contexts. And so slight variations in the search terms that you use can lead you to entirely different wells of results. I mean, you think in the US context of even things like undocumented migrants versus illegal immigrants. One, you're gonna get more liberal content, one, you're gonna get more conservative. China and Russia exploit that. So they put their own phrasing out there, get people to search for it. Searching for it leads them right back to the same content, creating this sort of circular ampl amplification of their own messaging. Can I ask a point of clarification? Yeah. We've used for the search engine research. Mm -hmm. We've done studies on both Google and Bing, and then Google News and Bing News. We've also done it on things like Yandex, which is the Russian search engine, which as you can imagine is a <laughs> far scarier search environment. Uh, but it's usually Google, just because it's the dominant one. And we include YouTube in that as well, even though that's not actually a search engine, often is used as a search engine. So my interest in this goes back actually to grad school when I started looking at how effective Russian state media was on YouTube. And I was led to that question because I was TAing undergrad classes and seeing RT YouTube content cited often by undergrads in papers that didn't really have much to do with Russia. And when I'd asked them why, it was just, that's what comes up when I entered a search term. So now finally to the it's a sort of synchronicity and messaging around the U Ukraine war and China's what they call sort of pro-Kremlin neutrality. So China is very careful not to sort of overtly and explicitly endorse Russia's invasion, but their support comes just shy of that. So what we've seen from the very start is that they've adopted many of Russia's um, narratives and their use of sanitized language to discuss the war. So this was the day of the invasion, again, Chinese state media and a Chinese diplomatic account, using even the word invasion in quotes and saying that the West never called what happened in Iraq or anywhere else an invasion, that this is all a manipulation of the Western media. And then even picking up on the use of special military operation. The first couple months of the war, China, like Russian state media, rarely called it a war. It was always special military operation, often quoting Russian officials directly. And here we actually see the number of tweets. This is over the last year, basically. We ran this in January. The number of tweets from Chinese officials and state media that reference something that Putin said or Lavrov said versus the Ukrainian counterpart, so Zelensky or Kuleba. And there's a significant preference for Russian officials, particularly diplomats. Yeah? Are your searches strictly run in English or do you use various French and 
It's a good question. So our, our dashboard collects globally and we auto-translate everything into English. So when you run a search query, it would be in English, but we're collecting every single language globally that's been auto-translated, which for some terms is not super accurate, for names usually is. And then we've seen them adopt these very sort of pro-Kremlin lines about adversaries, particularly NATO. So NATO being the aggressor, obviously this is something Russia has pushed for decades, uh, but particularly in the lead up to the war. That again is the uh, Council General in Belfast who has this cartoon of children pushing a dumpster full of NATO weapons off a cliff, not particularly subtle. And then this idea that NATO expansion is to blame for the war. So that's a Chinese diplomat, Chinese state media on the right. Again, talking about the people to blame for this are NATO, NATO expansion. This was something that was new for Chinese officials. This was not a topic that they covered prior to the war. If you look at 2021, the total mentions of NATO and all of the data we collect, so Chinese diplomats, state media, just over 1,200. That went up to over 7,800 after the war. And NATO expansion was mentioned 52 times in 2021, over 900 times in 2022. Now some of that, a war is happening, you expect some increase. There's probably been an increase in every single media outlet of these terms, but not sort of a tenfold increase. Then this idea that Ukrainians are neo-Nazis, this was not mentioned at all by Chinese officials prior to the war. Of course, it was something that Russia has pushed for a very long time. So it's Russian state media on the left, Chinese state media on the right. And even though this is taking a clip actually from PBS, um, Wilmer Leon, he hosts a Sputnik radio show in DC. So he is a Russian state media affiliated uh, person. And so they've kind of picked up on that. So they've actually found Russian state media figures, amplified them, given them a platform. Then the big one that has obviously been covered a lot is the US bioweapons program in Ukraine. So about three weeks into the war, Russia created this major messaging campaign around the fact that the US was supposedly running these bioweapons, uh, bioweapons uh, programs in Ukraine and 30 plus biolabs. Immediately, China backed up this message and you see, again, direct citations of Russian state media from Chinese state media and from Chinese government officials. They even cited and amplified these sort of fringe quasi-Russia-affiliated characters uh, who have run noted disinformation campaigns in the past about US bioweapons programs. So Dilyana there is a Bulgarian journalist who has shown up on our radar going back to 2017, uh, where she ran a disinfo campaign about the Luger lab in Georgia, the country of Georgia, also running supposedly a bioweapons program. She appeared right at the beginning of the war again, made this claim that the US embassy in Kyiv was scrubbing their site of any mention of support for the actual authentic bio research that was happening in Ukraine. But this was a totally fabricated claim. She linked to a just entirely defunct domain and claimed that that was the US Embassy scrubbing their site, but the link was always there. It was pure disinformation. But you see Chinese officials just amplifying that claim. 
And of course, this all ties back in, as we talked about earlier, to Fort Detrick. So they're sort of mutually reinforcing conspiracy theories. China's been trying to say U.S. is running uh, bioweapons labs. So this was sort of backing up that earlier claim while also aiding Russia. And then there's been just straight signal boosts of RT and RT-affiliated characters. Um, that's George Galloway. He's a former UK uh, politician, but hosts a show on Sputnik. He's a regular on RT. Uh, Scott Ritter is American, also those regularly on RT, now given a platform on Chinese state media. This was after a lot of the Russian state media bans. Same with Lee Camp there on the right. Used to host a show on RT America. Was then given a very prominent platform on Global Times. So there's always been this question of whether this is just general interest alignment or direct cooperation. For a long time, we couldn't really answer that question, and I think it's probably still a bit of both, particularly when you talk about the sort of anti-Western, anti-American orientation of the messaging. But around the war in Ukraine, China's support has gone somewhat beyond that, I would say, to uh, really more backing of an ally. And through some of the leaked documents we have uncovered at this point that there are actual propaganda agreements between the two countries. So some of that is through distribution agreements that aren't necessarily nefarious. Uh, others go to really more direct support. So finally, just to touch on very briefly, whether there are limits to the partnership and whether there are potential cracks for the future. Uh, this is obviously a major question as we sort of look over the horizon, uh, because if Russia and China are in lockstep in their information activities, again, particularly in the global south and non-aligned countries, this would be a real messaging problem for the West. The one thing that we've seen in their Ukraine messaging that has sort of a third rail is any attempt to connect Ukraine to Taiwan. So Chinese official state media have pushed back vigorously if there had been suggestions that what we're seeing happen in Ukraine have any relevance to Taiwan in terms of territorial sovereignty. That is where Chinese officials are sort of happy to no longer back their Russian ally and state quite clearly that Ukraine is not Taiwan, that Ukraine actually is a um, recognized country, Taiwan is not. Um, so this is one of the fissures we've seen, but Frankly, there's been far more alignment over the past year in messaging than we've seen divergences. So I will stop there and open it up to questions. Oh, could you just tell me, is this ongoing research every day or was this a research project that On came to ongoing. a conclusion? Yeah, so we have through our main data database, which is publicly available, so you can go to it online. We collect all of this data on a daily basis and then aggregate it and we'll show you sort of top 10 charts so you can see at any given moment what the narratives are that are getting the most backing globally, but it also allows you to run searches. So if you're interested in bioweapons mentions, you could search our whole database of attributable accounts and see it, but it's, it's, it's ongoing. So we do weekly sort of top line reports just to hit on the major themes and then we'll do often a little bit more robust reporting on a major issue. So we put out on Friday a year in review of Russia and China East messaging around Ukraine. 
often what we use it for uh, is a tool that we can take to members of the media. When they have seen things anecdotally, we can give them the data points to back that up or to dispute it in some cases. But allows us to say, you know, journalists will come to us and say, hey, we're seeing, we're seeing a couple Chinese officials start to talk about neo-Nazis. Are you picking that up? And we can run queries for them or sort of point them towards how to use the tool. So it's also meant for an external audience so that other people can do research. Because I have a pretty small team. So frankly, we have more data than we can possibly analyze. We'll take one question at a time. And please um, speak to the microphone. Gentleman over there. So yeah, I can tell you're overwhelmed by this. And I was wondering, you probably have a limit to the amount of material you can put in it. For instance, I'd be interested in seeing what the themes were from the um, Russian Orthodox Church, which is very supportive and would probably be propagandizing on the Ukraine issue. Would that be possible to do a query in your database and pull that out? It would be possible to collect the data. We aren't currently. Um, Part of the reason is we limit it to, not that the Russian Orthodox Church is limited in its messaging to audiences within Russia, but generally we're looking at external messaging. So this is also a limitation of our data. Mm -hmm. We don't have a good read on what Russia is doing within Russia and China is doing within China. And so unless the accounts are, again, directly attributable to a government official or state media, we don't track it. It's theoretically possible. We just don't. Thank you very much. This has been really wonderful. Uh, this is an area that I've dealt with a lot over the years, but not obviously the deep dive that you're dealing with. And I think it's something that, uh, unfortunately, because of the way our society is with open, open information and everything, as you pointed out, nobody ever goes to the bottom of after the first or second thing, and, right. and we just take, people just take it. Um, I'm specifically addressing a point that I was wondering, how far back have you been dealing with this issue? I got my eyes wide, wide open back in uh, 2019 in preparation for going over to Ukraine, dealing with the emerging, uh, at the time, uh, the emerging uh, um, um, uh, measles epidemic in in um in Ukraine. And that had to do with the, what turns out it was presentation by George Washington University, spearheaded by them, uh, uh, Johns Hopkins and University of Maryland, Maryland College Park, where they had been tracking since 2013, a year before the invasion into Crimea about, and they were producing disinformation via bots, and the bots were used specifically to create division in society, American society on uh, vaccinations, uh, so that 51%, this is, this is what they presented, 51% of the information was pro-vaccine, 49% anti-vaccine, therefore trying to provide a wedge. Now, these numbers are still being used out there by 
people in society of why we don't do vaccines. It spread over to the issues regarding, of course, the COVID and so on and so on and so on. So how far back do you, have you been digging? Or is, I mean, we're just seeing this, this, these veins of gold that you're presenting now. Where, you know, where do you see this? Where was the start, let's say? So to your first point about the on-level playing field, that's the clear challenge here, right? Like we want to keep our open information environment Russia used to be a sort of quasi-open information environment. I mean, at least you can access Western sources there. That has become harder and harder. China, obviously, forever, essentially, has been a closed information environment. So their bad actors can play in our space, and our good actors can't play in their space. And so this is just a disadvantage that I don't think we're ever going to overcome. I mean, there's ways of fighting back, but I think you highlight the big challenge is that just we can't message to their populace the way that they can message to ours. Right. In terms of how long we've been doing, I've been doing this since 2015, but from systematically collecting data on our current dashboard, that started in 2019 with Russia, 2020 with China and Iran. Um, and we've also expanded the platforms that we've collected data on. So. There are various dates where we have different sort of data collections that started. But your point about public health being a gateway drug for propaganda is very, very valid. When we did our work in Germany prior to the election, where RT Deutsch, as I noted, was not just sort of a significant fringe player, they were the dominant German language media page on Facebook. The content that was getting all of the traction was around COVID public health related issues. At this point, they had gone to being almost entirely vaccine skeptics, public health skeptics. Um, but in some ways, it's, it sort of doesn't matter. It's a way of getting an audience and you attract an audience by giving them a message they want. And then they, of course, pile in Ukraine, Syria messaging on top yeah. of it. I always think back, and I don't know why I use this as sort of the analogy, but growing up in Chicago as a kid, there was a, a place called Baker Square, whose sort of tagline is like, come for the food, stay for the pie. And that's how I look at Russian propaganda. As you come for the content you care about, you start following that channel, and then it just shows up when they have some crazy conspiracy about biolabs and is in your feed. And so it's effective. And it, you know, COVID, again, was the perfect vehicle for them, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. particularly in places like Germany, where there are not a lot of alt media outlets. Yeah. And so they fill the gap there by running sort of anti-government, anti-public health content. And again, piling Ukraine stuff on top. And of course, the health issues, when you, when you have, when you, the issues are dividing a society, these, you, the, the deeper you can create the divides, the divides that spill over to any host of other areas. Correct. So, and it was, it was very, very cynical. Uh, you know, anti-Americanism that comes out of Russia, fine, it's a perspective. But the messaging Russian state media was given, giving to Russians was completely opposed to what they were pushing externally. Like, the Russian government was not against vaccinations, clearly at home. And then abroad, that was their 
message to try to denigrate Western vaccines. Some of that was around the efforts to push the Sputnik V vaccine in the global south. But again, it was one of, the, I think, the more cynical campaigns we've seen where a public health-related issue was not just used as a vehicle, but, I mean, almost certainly used in a way that had adverse public health consequences right, right. for propaganda purposes. Did you have a question? Thank you very much for that really informative presentation. My question is, how much of this same stuff does the United States do to China and Russia? Not much. Well, so first of all, I would want to totally separate USAGM, which is, yes, a government-backed broadcaster from RT, CGTN. I mean, the firewalls are totally different. Our ability, though, even to message in those places, like forget what the content is, is so limited. So I'm forgetting now why I'm forgetting the name of the Russian language USAGM channel. Uh, current time, thank you. Current time, I think, does good work, but it mainly can reach audiences in the periphery of Russia, so Russian speakers and they're near abroad, and it's largely blocked within Russia, so it takes some effort. I mean, Russians can get to it, but they really have to go out of their way as opposed to RT, global times that surface on our search engines and are on our social media platforms. So I don't know exactly what we're trying to do in the information space in China, but it, it is a significantly more difficult problem than Russia. Um, and so I would assume that something, that we are attempting some things there, but it would, it's being done kind of covertly because it would have to be because anything that would carry a US government label would be blocked or restricted. And so, yeah, I don't have a great answer to that question of how effectively we're countering messaging other than saying it's significantly more difficult to even get started. I, I've heard that a lot of people, not a lot, I should say, I have heard of people that deal with that kind of messaging into Russia that Russians are now having, are, are trying to be more careful or not accessing it because their fear, whether it's accurate or not, of Russia as a police state, as a police state being able to track back that they have tracked it and given the crackdown that's going on in Russia of any kind of opposition that they don't really want to go knock on the door. Yeah, so my, my former boss, Jamie Fly, now heads RFERL in Prague. And I know they've had good success during the war at finding audiences, because I think we're going back to the Cold War days, unfortunately. Yeah. We're like, you are dealing with that problem, but I think there are Russians too, particularly among the elite, who know they're being lied to. And so there is a desire to access truthful information. So I think RFERL has done a really great job during the war, given its limited resources. And this is, this is a broader sort of question problem. When we look at the fact we're getting crushed in Latin America, I don't know what the current numbers are, but when I last checked, let's say fiscal year 2021, we we're spending $8 million on Spanish language broadcasting which is, you know, loose change for the U.S. government. 
and it definitely pales in comparison to what RT in Espanol is, and that's why we're getting. Well, due to the limited time, we'll just take two more questions. Um, one of the things that anybody who's traveled around <clears throat> knows is that conspiracy theories are like utterly rife and epidemic in, in Slavic world, the Muslim world, and the Arab world. You know, pretty much everything is a conspiracy. And, you know, with the advent of Trump and now the conspiracy lunatics and the big lie, America is one of those countries, you know, and it, I think it's it's utterly tragic. I mean, now I, I listen to C-SPAN radio and, and uh, you know, it, I, it, it hurts to listen to the lies of Republicans who are half or even more delusional, you know, totally delusional. And, uh, you know, how do we how do we move on from that? I mean, you know, you can uh, you can keep exposing this stuff, but but people just are, you know, simple in what they believe in. And how do you deal with, with like the moral erosion of just listening? Because, because listening to lies really drives me crazy. I, you know, I just get furious. There's, there's a broader, I think, to digital information ecosystem problem that is affecting everyone globally. Like there, there's no place I've been in the last four years, even places I went four years ago who felt pretty insulated, uh, that, doesn't, that don't feel now like their populations are very, very vulnerable. And that is, I think, in part because of the low cost, no cost ability to become a publisher and exist online. In some cases, that's great. There has been outstanding citizen journalists who have popped up in the information age. It is a problem, however, when you're looking at a Facebook or a Twitter or a Google search engine and you're having credible media outlets that are appearing side by sides, and in some cases are effectively being jumped by somebody operating out of their mother's basement. I mean, this, this cuts across sort of political lines. I do think there is a significant, or I should say a significant cause of degradation of truth goes to political leadership. This is around the globe too. When you don't see political leaders leaning in to conspiracy theories, conspiracy narratives, they tend not to have the same traction. And so even, you know, we did some work around the midterms looking more at domestic candidates, also some of the foreign influence. And what we saw are, were in places where candidates did not lean into false narratives about stolen elections, they just sort of died off in those places. And where they did, they kept going. So there's a political leadership problem here where if the people at the top are amplifying these things, that's real hard for the fact checkers and organizations like mine who have I have four people on my team to counter. We're just not. I don't know how to solve that. That's a bit of a pessimistic take is we need, we need leadership to accept the truth writ large. Um, but I haven't figured out the formula for that, other than there being more consequences for lying. Uh, I, um, my name is Yaroslav Martinuk. I'm formerly a researcher with RFERL in Munich. Um, Two-part question. Um, the idea that NATO expansion provoke Putin to attack Ukraine 
seems to have been uh, accepted, swallowed by some prominent academics like Mearsheimer and Walt and journalists like Tucker Carlson, Gabbard and others. Uh, are, to what extent are they aware that this, they're, they're uh, accepting, they're, 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 they're uh, repeating Kremlin's line is it, or are they just naive or, or what? That, that's, that's the fir, fir, yeah, first, okay, uh, first part. So all of those figures are consistently amplified by Russian and Chinese state media outlets because you want Western validators, right? It's always more effective to have somebody who has credibility in the target audience, with the target audience, to say the things that you're saying or you wish you could say to them with more credibility. So it is enormously valuable from a propaganda standpoint for Russia to have these people who have authentic audiences repeating these lines. And so we see this amplification effect happening. And I like, you know, I always want to be cautious about labeling a contrarian opinion as being inherently pro-Kremlin. I think there are times where that line is clearly crossed. You know, T Tucker talking about bio labs in Ukraine feels sort of jumping that line. Um, but again, from what we can see of how valuable it is for the Russians and Chinese, it's enormously valuable. When you can point to someone with either credibility or let's not even say credibility, a significant audience who's pushing this stuff, they don't need to do much then. Uh, and another part, you mentioned uh, uh, that one of the aims of the Russian, of the propaganda is to create divisions in American society. Uh, are you, I've read a lot about uh, Russian influence in the 2020 BLM riots. To what extent were they, we can attribute uh, the aggravation of this? I, I, actually don't like to use the term create divisions. I think they exploit them. I don't think they're effective enough. In most cases, I mean, you could go back through history and you, there are particular times maybe where they're able, able to inflame something. But a movement like BLM, I don't think they had any role whatsoever in creating or creating the divisions around it. What they're able to do effectively is piggyback off of those divisions or those narratives to inflame tensions a little bit, maybe redirect the conversation. But again, I always look at it as this sort of gateway drug to talk about the issues that Russia really, really cares about. And this cuts across, again, anything that we have seen Russia try to amplify conservative or liberal causes. I don't think we can attribute any of the divisions, or let's say very little of those divisions to Russian messaging. I think you can look at it that they were skillful in exploiting those divisions and using them, in some cases to make things a little worse, but I caution even saying that, but definitely to inject sort of pro-Kremlin messaging in there. I mean, and we've seen them attempt to do this. So with the bioweapons and the, the biolabs conspiracies, they're good at piggybacking off domestic narratives. So at a certain point, they connected those biolabs to Pfizer and Moderna, again, to piggyback off sort of public health-related skepticism. 
Hunter Biden was pulled in. So you get this sort of overlapping of domestic, foreign, in ways that are beneficial to them. But I, I don't think we can give them credit, if that's the right term, for America's divisions. But I do think we can blame them for exploiting them in destructive ways. Well, thank you, uh, Mr. Sheffer, for such thank an you. interesting presentation. Thank you.